Garcia, thank you so much for being here today. You're welcome. Thanks for coming in between Christmas and New Year's. <laughs> yes. Nice casual day. Oh, definitely. How was your Christmas? It was nice. Nice. My I, best Christmas ever. My daughter got engaged on Christmas Day, so we're super excited and going to be planning a wedding soon. Congratulations. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Uh, the first time we met was actually at the family office at Fordham University. Yes. Yes. Held by Paul Johnson. Yeah, that was the first time I got to meet Paul. Uh, I had heard about him through some other people, um, but I never had a class from him. I don't know when he started, um, when he started teaching at Fordham, but I graduated in 2005, so probably a little before his time. Right. <clears throat> and of course, we're both alumni of the school. Yeah, I love it. And um, did you always grow up in New York? No, I am, I'm a transplanted New Yorker. I grew up in Utah. Um, moved to New York shortly after graduating from college, and I have lived in New York. My husband and I have lived in New York for 30 plus years, so we consider ourselves New Yorkers now. Awesome. <clears throat> and tell us where are you now? So currently I am Managing Director at Alberline Family Office Solutions. We are a boutique investment bank that's owned by a family office, and we do private investing on behalf of our primary backer, our family. And then we also work with a network of about another 30 to 40 families that we set up deals for them and sort of an outsourced CIO for them. Very nice, okay. And did you always know you want to work in finance? No, 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 no. Um, I actually graduated with a degree in English and history and I taught high school when I first moved to New York um, for a couple of years and then realized that I didn't really want to do that long term and didn't know what I wanted to do, and I ended up getting a job in fashion publishing as an executive assistant. So I lived the Devil Wears Prada life for about 10 years, which was really great for somebody who was uh, fresh to New York. Um, my husband was also in grad school uh, getting his master's in English Lit. So we had, uh, we had a lot of fun in publishing and doing some fun things together. Very nice, okay. So would you say that was your first intro into the family office role? So after, so really what happened is, um, you know, fashion publishing started to deteriorate when dot-com came along. Mm -hmm. You know, just think about how many print magazines you actually subscribe to now as opposed to, well, back in the day before you were born, we used to have 10 or 15 subscriptions and then dot-com came along and magazines started to go under. And I got recruited to go work for a family office, even before it was called a family office. I went to work for a private philanthropist and they had, uh, the family had a very big um, mandate for education. So they loved the fact that I had an education background and then I could also do all sorts of project management and anything that they needed me to do on any given day. So I had a really nice, interesting foray. Uh, I worked for a billionaire philanthropist, that, and I say this is a, when a billion dollars was a lot of money. That was my first intro to a family office. Sure. Could you tell us what a family office is? So, so, so the running joke is that everybody says if you've seen one family office, you've seen one family office. So it, it's really changed over the last few years. The first family I worked for, as I said, was very philanthropic. And, and I think, you know, 25, 30 years ago, family offices were really much more focused on wealth preservation, philanthropy, setting up trusts, um, doing good in the world, right? That was really, the family office was really built around that. In the last 10 years, I think we've really seen a rise in family offices that are, that are doing more for wealth preservation, really acting more like private equity firms and doing direct investing. So the family has shifted, the family office world has shifted more from being strictly philanthropic 
and multi-generational to uh, be more financially savvy and, and be more proactive in the fund and actually being a player as opposed to, as I said, a private equity firm, we're seeing a lot more family offices that are active in direct investing and seeing that as a way to preserve their wealth, but also as, you know, staying in the game. Right. So Sid and I go to a lot of family offices to pitch deals. And as okay. a matter of fact, when we first met, we yeah. told about that deal downtown. Um, and one of the things that we noticed about family offices today is that they're looking at a lot more deals themselves rather yeah. than relying on outside sources. So do you think that's something that's prevalent throughout the industry or maybe just with firms here in New York? No, no, I, I actually sit, you know, in addition to my role here at Alberlina, I'm on a, I'm an advisor to a family office in Utah. I'm on the advisory board there. Um, I'm seeing a lot of family offices in the Midwest, certainly uh, Southwest California, even Europe, um, although I shouldn't say even Europe, I should say the family office world is much more, the, it's much more um, longer term in Europe, but certainly here in the US we're starting to see changes here. But I think more and more families are becoming more, more sophisticated right. and they are, they're more financially savvy themselves and their children are financially savvy and families are being more proactive in hiring investment professionals in-house. I think really a lot of that had to do with the 2008 downturn um, and families that a lot of family offices had a lot of money in the, in the market felt like they, um, that they were paying a lot of fees to outside professionals and, and didn't feel like that they were getting the returns that they thought they should and they said, well, why are, why are, why are we paying fees? You're still making money, but I'm losing money. So not, I'm not saying that's true or not. I'm just saying that that was a perception and that like 2008 really turned turn, turn the market. So families were saying, well, look, if I'm paying you two and 20, I can keep that myself. Um, if, and, and I can keep those, those returns myself and not have to pay somebody else that. Um, and, and so families started to be more sophisticated in doing their own direct investing. So you see them hire their own panelists, their own counsel. Oh, absolutely. And there's organizations that are doing, I just met with an organization in Utah that is an outsourced SPBE firm. So they actually do the terms, they'll do the legal and accounting piece for, and, and they are, most of their clients are family offices that are actually growing and looking to set up doing an SPBE in a, you know, whether it's a real estate transaction or any sort of, sort of private equity type transaction. Very nice. Would you say when a couple of family offices get together and pool their capital, they're able to cut overhead by using the same office, the same lawyer, the same? Analysts? Yes, absolutely. Well, you know the thing is, like traditionally, people did that in real estate all the time, right? Mm -hmm. You know, like like everybody, like like that 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 was traditionally how real estate pools came together, right? Um, I don't think that it was so common as a as a business ownership, mm -hmm. um, but that's really really changing. And I think what's also happening is I'm seeing some family offices, actually really, I'll tell you, I saw one met a family office recently that the two founders ran their own private equity fund and their fund is still going, but then they set up a family office outside of their fund. So they took their capital that they had made from their, from their private equity fund and hired private equity professionals. They hired somebody from their fund to come over and manage their personal investments. Sure. So, so they're actually like working alongside their family office 
I mean, their family offices working alongside their private equity fund. Sure. You see, like Dave Rubenstein from Colorado doing this. Absolutely, absolutely. And he's and he's very strict. He has to be very careful that he's not competing with anything in the Carlisle space. So he really took a so so. Um, David Rubenstein's family took a took a an approach to be more like venture capital, and and so they do a, a, a slightly different market than than Carlisle. And I think Sick is because too one of the things that he always preaches is we have to cut overhead. So yeah. he has us in a small office, one analyst. So yeah. we're kind of like really crunching in. Yeah, I mean, I have to have a nice new brush. I have to wear more of the maybe do the new corporate overhead as yeah. minimal as possible. And if you really don't need too many analysts, uh, you know, at some point in time, you reach a point of diminishing returns, and just keep adding people, and it doesn't have to be quality of investment process. Right. Well, there are a lot of outsourcing firms now that have, that are. Um, there's a firm that I work with, or you know, that I'm on the, I'm on the board of ACG, and another board member founded a company that does outsource analytics. So, so for people who maybe you, if you're only doing two or three deals a year, you don't need a full-time analyst, but you still need those resources. So where do you find them? So I'm starting to see more and more firms pop up that support that family office community by providing some outsourced legal accounting, analytical services to the families. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. I think we should take note of that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm happy to make an intro for you. <laughs> you, you mentioned before, before I mentioned the Carlisle Group. Yeah. You, you happened to go there right after your first family office yes? Yeah, so so I was so I was working for this private family and I had uh, I call it second baby syndrome. So um, I had my first child before I started working there and I had my second child and it just uh, this was when family offices weren't so structured. So I was really working for the family. So that might mean like going in on a weekend or having to go out to Long Island or flying to Sweden or to Boston. And once I had my second baby, it was really almost impossible to, to be as flexible as the family needed me to be. So I, um, I decided to go back, to, that's when I decided to go back to graduate school and felt like I needed, I really felt like I needed the, um, an additional financial background in order to, to I, I was looking at this as a career change. And, um, but I had never worked in a financial firm and I went out on several interviews and I got hired in the Carmel group. I didn't even know what private equity was. So I, this was like brand new. And they had just opened an office in New York. So to oh, be wow. fair, that they were they were brand new. They had a half a floor at 520 Madison. Um, How many employees at the time? Um, in the New York office, maybe 20. Oh wow. In New York, yeah. So it was still it was still brand new. Um, so you probably worked with David Rubenstein directly? So I didn't work with, directly with David because he was based in, in, in D.C., but he would come up. So we would have, so, so Bill, Dan, and Dave, BDD, we would get notices that Bill Conway, uh, uh, Dan Daniello, or David Rubenstein, would, were, David Rubenstein were coming into the office. Um, but they were, they were probably the office, at least one of them, at least once a week would be in New York as they, were setting up the, as, they, as they were setting up in New York. Yeah. Interesting. And the whole reason why you transitioned there was because of the dot-com crash. Um, so could you speak to that, what the crash was even about? Yeah, so uh, this was the late 90s. Yeah. Um, a lot of tech startups, I mean, internet was a big thing. Yeah. And uh, a lot of companies IPO from the period between 96 and 2000. And um, a lot of them never made money. Yeah. But they were given these extraordinary valuations based on Future earnings growth. 
and um, I think I remember Bex.com being involved here mm -hmm. two years on the bus for that period. And um, I think that was the greatest overvaluation in, in terms of uh, just the multiples people right. in the stocks and in the history of stock markets, even bigger than Great Depression, like yeah. pre-Great Depression. I mean, the downside was great, but the upside wasn't that huge. In 2000, I mean, we saw margins going down by 50 to 60 percent. Yeah. And um, yeah, and it actually put a curse on these technological companies because then people had this shocking opinion about the internet being this fad mm -hmm. that has been just been busted. Yeah. So companies like Amazon which were still making money during that period, were, were giving cheap, very cheap valuations. And uh, so it was, yeah. So, so after this transition, you go to Carlisle, right? Yeah, so, so just because, so I was at Carlisle, I wasn't on the private equity side, I actually worked in high yield. Right. So we, yeah, so we owned, so, so I was there from 2000 to 2003. So we owned WorldCom, Tyco, Global Crossing, and all of those crashed when the dot-com crashed. And I worked, I literally worked for seven different people over the course of three years. It was almost like a revolving door because people were just trying to figure, people were just trying to figure it out. You know, what they thought they, what they, thought they were seeing in the market wasn't really happening in the market. And a lot changed and 9-11 happened in the middle of that. So it was a really, I mean, I say it was a really hard time, and I say more power to Carlisle for like weathering that storm and being and coming out stronger after that. But it was a it was a really difficult time in the in the financial markets. What would you say that whole experience was like? Um, that well, ironically, I thought, wow, who wants to work in finance? <laughs> this is not fun. You know, when I was looking at like doing like what I shouldn't say that. So so. I learned a lot, you know, I had access to a Bloomberg terminal, which I had never used before, and access to research, so I learned a lot about like the information that was available. Um, and, and then I also realized that, you know, like, you know, you just have to be smart, you know, and, and there are different plays in the market, and, and the, the, the area that we were in just happened to be the area that, that went down at that particular time. But other areas in, at Carlisle there became really strong. The telecom media tech group grew really fast. Um, real estate was going. There were other there were other areas of the firm that were doing really well. So I just sort of learned just like for my personal finances not to put my eggs in all in one basket. Sure. Yeah. And with all this going on, you decided to go back to graduate school. What was the reason for yes, that? Yes, yes. So so in the middle of this, well actually so part of the reason I took the job at Carlisle what was was to go back to graduate school. So I wanted to, I, I decided I should actually get a job in finance uh, while I was going to school. Uh, I actually came, I was I was working for this family office and I, came, and I came home one day and said to my husband, I said, I think I need to go back to grad school and get an MBA. And he said, do you know what that means? Do you know what that is? I said, no, but I know I need one. Because we were both English majors and he has his master's in English lit. And I said, look, the, the world is changing and, and we, our decision was my, my husband, when my daughter was born, my, my first child was born, my husband stayed home and, and became a freelance ghostwriter. And so I was a primary breadwinner and I had you know insurance and everything was, was on my shoulders. And um, we wanted to stay in the city. And we just knew that, that, that you know, I had seen the changes in the 
Madison Avenue, Condé Nast, publishing world. And I said, look, you know, even with the changes in the, you know, even with the stock market doing this, um, it always bounces back. And New York yeah. is really the center of finance. And if I, if we want to stay in the city, that I, I need to go back to school. And nobody's going to hire me because I have an undergraduate degree in English and history from a small college in Southern Utah. Um, I really need something that that is going to um, one boost my confidence and two show show potential hires that I'm a you know a force to be reckoned with or somebody that that, that is worth hiring. So um, I actually took the job at Carlisle because it was a block from the Kaplan Center where I was studying for my GMAT. So I had like no like I said I knew nothing about finance. I didn't know what Carlisle was. It was really all about location, location, location. I could leave my office, walk to the Kaplan Center, I could leave my office, I could get to Fordham very quickly. Um, it was all about making my life as easy as possible. And how long did it take you to complete it? So I worked full time. So you now remember, I had a, I, when I went back to graduate school, I had a four year old and a one year old. Wow. And I was working full time and going to school at night. So I did the, the part-time program at Fordham and, and it took me four years. Um, in the middle of that, my daughter had some, had some pretty, a pretty serious surgery. She had, she had a brain tumor. So I actually had to take, I was actually in the middle of classes and um, she had to go in for some surgery. And I have to say Fordham was amazing. The, um, they they refunded they refunded my whole semester. They refunded my tuition when I called them and told them what was going on. And my daughter ended up spending most of the summer in the hospital. Um, and then come fall, I was back in classes and she was back in school. And everybody not good. Everybody was fine. Um, but it did that that did take a little like you know added an extra semester to my uh, coursework. But um, for the timing, but it took me it took me four years. Very nice. Yeah. Okay. And after Carlisle, you weren't done with family offices, so you decided to go to another one? Yes, I got recruited to another family office. Um, this was actually, a, I worked for a gentleman, he's a, just an amazing individual. He was a retired Air Force, he was an Air Force pilot in Vietnam, um, and became a, a general, he was a Brigadier General, retired as an Air Force General, and had a whole, has a whole second career, still has a second career in the sports world. And I went to work for him, he, his name is Harvey Schiller, he was the executive director of the U.S. Olympic Committee. And he had, prior to that, he'd run Turner Sports Broadcasting, he had run, he'd been president of Yankee Nets. And when I worked for him, um, he was the managing chair of the 2012 bid. So New York City was bidding to get the Olympics in 2012. And so we worked really closely with Mayor Bloomberg's office and his whole team. I just met all these like, amazing people, a whole different, a whole different world, right? Um, all of these sports figures and um, entertainers. And, and I just got to see, it was actually really exciting to see what it takes, like, what, like how much goes into a, a, a bid, you know, an Olympic bid for a city. Right. But I met a lot of really, really interesting people um, through that, and I was still in graduate school, and Harvey was very supportive of me, um, and, and he gave me some flexibility. I had some flexibility if I needed to take some time off for my kids, and he was really supportive of me finishing school and really encouraged them. Great. And would you consider him to be a mentor? Yes, and we are still friends. I still talk to him. We probably get together three or four times a year. He's not in New York all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, but we still see each other, and he, I, I've actually, I've recruited him to speak on panels when I've done events. Um, he's now in his 80s, um, but he is still a very close friend. 
Yeah. So to speak to that, would you say mentors are important in careers? Oh, is absolutely. Is needed? Yeah, yeah. And I think you can need different mentors at different times in your life. So when I was looking to go back to graduate school, um, I, to be perfectly honest, I didn't know, you know, through my church relationships and friend relationships, I didn't know many women who had gone back to school with, with children, except I had one friend at church and she had gone back, she had gone, uh, she's a managing director or partner now at Goldwyn Sachs, and she had been a teacher, she'd been a music teacher, and she had three young children, and she'd gone back to school at Columbia. And so I spent a lot of time talking with her, you know, is this possible? Just like, you know, can you do this, right? And that was really, really helpful to have somebody who encouraged me along the way. Um, and then certainly having Harvey, um, you know, Harvey Schiller was just really a great mentor to me. You know, from that transition, you know, Linda, Linda Danes is the woman at Goldman that I worked with. Um, so she like helped me, like, I needed her when I was going, thinking about going back to school, and then Harvey was, okay, now that you're done, like, transitioning out. And then I will tell you, like, honestly, in addition to mentors, I've hired, this, I've had a couple of business coaches that I've hired as I've needed different skill sets. So I've had both mentors and professional coaches who have helped me in my career. Very nice, okay. Yeah. So these guys helped you power through school? Yes, During yes. those four years? Okay. Harvey, Harvey was really, really helpful when I was in grad school. What would you say to people that say, you know, I'm too busy, I can't go back to school, or I have too many kids, too much responsibility, what would you say to those people? You know, like really, that's such an individual decision. For me, it was really, I, I just didn't see that I, like, I just felt like it was the only decision that worked for me was to go back to school. And and it was hard, you know, trust me. I mean, I, I literally, I would, I would, um, I studied at my lunch hour. So there was a library right across the street about a block away from, 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 from the Carlinger, the Donnell Library, which is the town library. And I would leave at lunch and I would go study you know, for an hour, 45 minutes, I would come back, eat lunch at my desk after studying, um, and I, you know, and I went to school one night a week, and I did two classes, and the thing about boredom was that I could do two classes on one night, so I would do like six to 10 at night. Um, I luckily lived around the corner from boredom, so for me it was all about that convenience, so right, you know, there, that, that, that helped, yeah. that, it, that it was convenient. But the reality is, like, who cares if it took me four years or ten years, right? You know, like it didn't, like it, I don't really think that matters. Um, if I had needed to stretch it out a little bit longer and take one class a semester instead of two, I would have done it. Um, so for people who say, like, if if it's something that you're really interested in, um, I, you know, go for it. Like, who cares, right? You know, sure. it's, it's only, it's only, it's, again, it's like that's a personal decision, but um, I think there are ways to make it work. Okay. Um, so with all this going on, then what happens? The Great Recession comes, and what was that whole experience like, and how did that change the industry again? Well, it certainly changed the family office community, but I also think it changed the whole investment environment. You know, every, you know, from from robo advisors. Um, I, I think it's a, I think it's a whole combination. With, you know, the two thousand eight was a combination of technology, but post two thousand eight, there's a huge change in technology and also in resources. So I don't think you can look at just one side of it and say, well, the market crashed and, 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 and the world changed. I think you say, well, the market crashed. And then people realize that we need to be smarter. And I think and technology is making changes and making it easier for people to be smarter. Very nice. 
So you, um, I mentioned a recession before, and you kind of alluded to not being sure when it would happen. Yeah. You do have a lot of talk in the industry. You have great value <coughs> saying there's a good chance it might happen in 2020. Um, do you have any prediction at all, or are you one of the believers where you really can't time it? I, I, I really don't think you can time it. I think right now, like consumer confidence is so high. You know, the consumers are really driving, you know, what's at least in the U.S. But you're also seeing like globally. You know, we we thought everybody thought there was going to be a recession in 2019, and there's right. certainly a global downturn, and you know, consumer confidence is high. Consumers are writing checks. We just had a, had a great Christmas. I think the retail industry had a great Christmas. Um, so, you know, I think I, I, you know, personally, you know, I'm not speaking for my firm or, or you know, FINRA. I'm not speaking for anybody there. Um, I do think that they're like, I definitely think that like everything I'm reading says that there's like, you know, the foundation is shaky. Sure. You know, I mean, we start to see the yield curve, you know, anything like that, like anybody, you know, get is inverting, which is, you know, obviously a sign, but I just think consumer confidence is so high. I don't, I don't think we can predict, predict anything at this point. Any thoughts on what the next bubble would be? You have a lot of people saying it might be sovereign debt, it might be personal debt. Yeah. I, you know, I, 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 I don't know. I have no idea. Okay. Yeah. I just mark, I read what you guys read. Yeah. Right. Um, so throughout your whole career, you have been leading different teams, mentoring different people. Yeah. From a leadership perspective, would you say that leaders are born or are they made? So, personally, I was incredibly shy as a kid, and that probably surprises you, but I really was very, very shy. Um, I just... You know, I think I think I think it's both. I think that that you know, I think that I, I think there, there are some people who are born leaders. I, I absolutely think that's true. But I think that some people take a little while to come into their own and find what they're passionate about and what their strengths are. And I really think that there I think there's a lot of tools out there. There's there's organizations called Strength Finders is one that I've used. Um, any of the like Myers Brigg or Disc Assessments, Colbay, any of those things can actually help you personally assess your strengths if you're not uh, not sure where they are. Um, so I think there are tools available to help you, but I think anybody can be a leader in something that they are passionate about and they have and they have um, you know where, where their strengths and talents lie. Sure. And in regards to hiring, what do you look for when you hire someone? Are there any qualities or traits that yeah, you have? Yeah, you know, so when, so when we have hired, like, when, when I personally hired for Deals and Divas, it was really like, I wanted people who were complimentary to me. I didn't want somebody, I didn't want a mini-me, because I can do, I know what I do, I know what I know, right? I need somebody who can fill in the gaps of things that I can't do. So that's part, that's part of it, you know, just like I'm from a talent perspective. But the other thing that we look at is people who are really willing to work hard. We're a, we're a small team here, so we work really hard. You know, we, um, I do most of my, I do everything myself, right? Like I, you know, I have a, I have some support staff that I can, that I share, I, sh I share a support person, but um, you know, I, I make my own travel arrangements. I like, like, like we just, I just do it myself. I rinse my coffee cup out, actually not my coffee cup, but my, my water glass out, um, you know, in the sink and put it in the dishwasher. I mean, like, I know that's a, that sounds like really silly, but at the same time, that's like, you can tell the, that like how hard somebody's going to work by whether or not they clean up after themselves when they come, you know, when they come in for lunch. Right. I mean, like that's a, right. that's a really interesting test because if, 
if I have somebody, I think millennials are really good. Like I'm gonna step back. Millennials get a bad name. They've got a bad rap, and people think, oh, millennials just think that they're gonna come in, they're gonna play foosball and ping pong all day, and they're not gonna work hard. Well, I don't think that's true, but I do think that there are certain people who come in and have an expectation that 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 you know I'm gonna come in and I'm gonna be vice president and I'm gonna be president in a year. That's not gonna happen. But I think if you walk into a job and say, look, I'm really willing to do the grunt work, to work hard, to get work, to learn everything I need to know. Need to know. Back in the day, people started like you started the mailroom and worked your way up, right? Yeah. And I think there's still, like for us, there's still that mentality. You know, it might not be like the mailroom. You're starting as an analyst and associate, but we really expect that, you know. Roll your sleeves. Yeah, exactly. I'm a managing director, and I put my own coffee cup away. You know, like you're an analyst, like I shouldn't have to put your coffee cup away just because you're a millennial, right? I mean, like I think that's like what what it's all about the attitude. Sure. So make sure you make the waiter and put back your chair. Exactly. Thank you very much. There you go. Um, for students that are watching, are there any classes or books you would recommend for them to read or for them to take? Yeah, well, I, you know, it's so, like, I mean, there's so much now online. It's like it's so easy to like, you know, just, you know, audit something online and get information. Really, I think back to the, what we talked about earlier about the relationships. There's a, there's a book by um, a friend of mine, Judy Robinette. She wrote a book called The Power Connector. Mm -hmm. And it's a really helpful book. Have you read that book? Yes, yes. So she wrote a book about the power connector and how you how you build relationships. And and I think that's a I think it's a really useful tool. Um, full disclosure, I'm actually quoted in her second book on crack the funding code. So she has a whole book for, for it's it's really more a primer for like early stage um, businesses and having you know everything from crowdfunding to family offices and what's in between and so that's a good book for people to read um kirby ross block has written a couple of books on family offices like the family office primer and family office directio though those are those are good resources for people who are really interested in learning about family offices sure. um and then i think they're like they're they're just some leaders in the industry you know easy to like you know look up russ allen prince he always has some really good articles on forbes um you know, just to kind of like give you an idea of some things that are that are happening out there. Um, another woman I really felt I'd like to like is Jerry Stengel. She's a, a ventureneer is her company, so um, really focuses more on like talking about women and venture capital. Um, and I think you know, I think like find it find like two or three people that you like their philosophy and follow them on LinkedIn and read their blogs, and and then you'll kind of expand from there. And I think that. You know, again, it comes down to like, what are you really interested in? But there's a handful of people out there that are writing really good things, and I think you can sort of build your network from there and build your your base and foundation. Very nice. Okay. And what would you say to yourself if you could speak to yourself when you first graduated college or when you were graduating from graduate school? What piece of advice would you give? Yeah, so um, I had a very eclectic career because I really didn't know what I wanted to do, and plus I didn't know what was available, right? You know, like, like where I grew up in Utah and where I went to school, the options for primarily for women were really limited, right? There were, you know, it was either, you know, farming, teaching, banking, you know, like like retail banking, right? You know, those were kind of like the, the, the options available to me. Um, I think today, I think the opportunities are, are tremendous. And I think um, I would say, you know, do as many internships as you can, 
um, talk to as many people as you can. Like I, I think that I, I think if I had to go back, I probably would have used the um, Career Resource Center better. You know, and a part of it for me was you know not having really truly not having the time. And I think I should if I had I would go back and say to myself like make sure that I you know while I was working at Carlisle I met meet more people talk to more people get to know more people add those people to my LinkedIn stay in touch with those people um, I think I really missed out on opportunities just to expand my network by not keeping in touch with the people that I knew and the same with some of my Fordham alumni you know like I didn't really build long-term relationships and I think that Part of that had to do with the part-time program, and part of that had to do with working full-time and having little kids. So sure. I think that, not that I, not to do 100%, but maybe if I had done 5% more, um, I think that would have been really beneficial to me. Okay. You know, so like looking ahead, you know, like building those alumni networks uh, early on while you're still, like where you're still mm -hmm. fresh, I think is really, really critical. Right, this makes me want to update my LinkedIn. You should update your LinkedIn. <laughs> you should definitely like be like you know constantly. I you know I, I think one of the best. I, I think LinkedIn is is a really critical tool, but I think it's one of those things that you have to like put it on your calendar. You know, like I block it on my calendar twice a week. I block a half hour to just work on LinkedIn. You know, so um, I just think that it's really really important okay. um, to just because you don't put it on your calendar and you don't block it, you won't do it. Right. You won't take it seriously. Yeah, and it's not just LinkedIn, but like any like social media. Yeah. Okay. Um, my last question was going to be, what type of investments are family offices looking for today? Well, I think that family offices are looking for more like private equity type investments. So I see a lot of families that are interested in more like light manufacturing, business services. Um, I see some in like con consumer retail, but again, it's that like they. You know, I don't want to be blanket like what family offices are interested in. A lot of family offices are interested in the types of business that they used to run and that they sold, and then they and now they're coming back and saying, "Oh wait, like I had a lumber business and I and it, and it did really well, so I sold that business, I made a lot of money, but but how can I can I build something new or something ancillary? Can I take the skill set? I can I transfer my skill set from my previous business to a new to my family office?" So I think that's really the trend, is how do I transfer that skill set? And then if I don't have the skill set, how do I hire people who can fill in those gaps for me? Right. But I really think that what I'm seeing is that lower middle market, 10 to $100 million deal, find a family, find a family owned business. You know, family offices are going in and, and, and competing against private equity, mm -hmm. not necessarily on price, right. but they're competing because they can say, look, we know what a family business looks like. We're long-term patient capital, and that really resonates sometimes with the seller. So I think that you know families are really looking for those you know discrete operating businesses where they can where they have like there's a family involved where they're still privately held. I think that's where family offices really want to go. Excellent. Okay. Duly noted. Thank you so much for your time, State Marcia. You're welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to have participated, and I'm honored that you would ask me. Thank you.